We are in a brand new series called Digging Deeper, uh, Treasures of the Ancient Faith. And I'm really excited about this series. Um, it's something that, you know, we do every now and then, but we don't really like go into it um, too often. Um, but the reason that we're decided that this is like kind of a good time for this series uh, is very simple. If you look out in the world, um, everyone kind of is searching for truth, but everyone is kind of at the same time making up their own truth. Okay, so everyone is like searching for truth, but everyone's making up their own truth based on like what I want, what my preferences are, what I like. So what we're going to do throughout this series is we are going to look at, oh, I think both of them are working. Thank you. So we are going to look at um, not just like what my preferential truths are or what like imaginary truths are, um, but what is the truth about like the ancient faith, the ancient Christian faith, um, and in general, um, Christianity in general, and then we'll take a look at orthodoxy as well. Um, we're going to look into a quote here by C.S. Lewis, which is probably one of my favorite quotes, and he has plenty of great ones. Um, he says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. How many of you guys have heard that quote before? A few hints? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I love C.S. Lewis, that's true. Um, so Christianity of false is of no importance if true is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. If what we say, or if what we, if we, if we believe what we say, then nothing, truly nothing really matters as much as our relationship with God. Nothing matters. Everything else comes second place. Like it's not even close. It doesn't even come close. If Christianity is true, it's of infinite importance. It's, if it's false, it doesn't matter. Anything that's false, there's plenty of false things out there. It doesn't matter. But if it's true, it's of infinite importance. The one thing I would hope that we all kind of get out of the series, whether you've been in the church all your life or you're kind of just curious about this church, somebody invited you to church today, whatever it may be. The one thing I hope is that we don't fall into what I like to call autopilot Christianity. Autopilot Christianity is the worst. It's the worst. It's what he's talking about there, that it's moderately important. It's that I kind of just go through the motions. I take for granted my life with God. I take granted my life with the church. So the one thing that I hope, that whether, again, you're new to, to the faith or you're checking out the faith, you're saying, you know what? I'm going to go all in. I'm going to really seek this through. You know, I have my doubts. I have my reservations, and that's okay. Or you've been in church for a while, and you're saying, you know what? Maybe it's time I, I start things up again. I, I, I kick it up a notch. I stop with the autopilot Christianity that I've been doing for so many years. That's my hope um, for this series as we go a little bit deeper into the faith. Now, the question for us is when we start, when we talk about such a big topic, I kind of struggle to, like, to, to think about where's the starting point? When we talk about the, the ancient faith and the treasures of the ancient faith, where in the world do we start? Is there a logical place to start? Like, let me ask you, isn't faith by definition kind of like just like a thing you believe? Or is there a way that we can look at how our faith is actually true? Like a logical way. Is there a logical starting point? I believe the logical starting point is very simple. The risen Christ is the center of the Christian faith. The risen Christ is the center of the Christian faith. If this is false, nothing else matters. If Christ did not die and rise again, nothing else matters. Everything that Christ said was nice, was kind of, you know, some people, that's why some people say, like, he's a nice moral teacher. Like, some people say Christ was a great moral teacher. Anyone who reads Christ and comes to that conclusion you didn't read all the sayings of Christ because Christ also made some crazy claims. Christ said that he was divine. Christ said that he existed before all ages. 
You can't say this guy was a, a nice moral teacher if you don't believe in the full story, in the full picture. So this is the place where we must start. We must start and look at, okay, the ancient Christian faith. What was the center? What was the center of the faith? This is the place to start, the risen Christ. The message for us from this is that we have to understand how Christianity became what it is today. Like Christianity is a huge religion today. There's many denominations and all that stuff, and we'll get into that. But Christianity is huge today. How did that, like, what was the spark? How did that happen? Christianity is not about a book that showed up in our hands and told us about God, okay? That's other religions. That's not Christianity. Christianity is not about one person heard a message from an angel and then tried to convince everyone, like a really charismatic preacher, and then try to convince a million people. That's not Christianity. That's not Christianity. Christianity did not start that way. Christianity started because a person walked on this earth, claimed to be God, died, and according to his believers, his followers, rose again. That's how Christianity started. And if you don't believe me about this kind of being the centerpiece, I'll show you kind of what St. Paul has to say. And St. Paul was obviously a convert to Christianity. Here's what St. Paul says. He says, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile or useless. You are still in your sins. Everything in the Christian faith centers around this. This, what we would say, fact. Some people would say, okay, well, that's what you believe. How do, how could, how do I know it's a fact? But everything centers around this. If you don't believe Christ died and rose from the dead, then you don't believe in the Christian faith. You can believe a lot of things about Christ, but you don't believe in the Christian faith. This is like the essence of the Christian faith. Now, let me take a second here to talk to uh, uh, skeptics, okay? And, and I myself am one, and, and everybody go through seasons of life. Even if you're a believer, you have moments of skepticism, moments of doubts, okay? For the skeptics, or, or those who are curious, shall we say, those who have been in the faith for a while sometimes take what we say for granted. This is a bold claim to make. That someone died and then rose from the dead. Like sometimes we just say things over and over and again, they just become second nature to us. But to say that somebody died and then rose again to a non-believer, that's, that's a bold claim. You better be able to back that up with something. Do we know that Christ died and rose? Like outside of like just the gospel accounts, do we know that Christ died and rose? Death is actually the easy part. The, the some people like deny like the death of Christ. Death is actually the very easy part. Most, nearly every scholar agree that Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross. It's not even really disputed like by modern scholars. And the reason is because outside of even just the ancient texts we have in the Gospels, we have various other texts that are not that are by non-Christians that were written about the death of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So like that is not even really disputed. That's the easy part. Jesus definitely died on the cross. Period. End of story. But what people actually will, will, will talk about um, is the resurrection. And is the resurrection like kind of like a myth or a legend? Like Christ was a great moral teacher. And then this story about Christ rising from the dead was kind of just like a myth or a legend that was carried on for generations and generations and generations. Now here's the problem with that. Legends actually take a lot of time to develop. Okay, Legends don't actually develop overnight. Legends aren't like... like I, legends by what, what historians will tell us, it takes at least two generations for legends to develop. So the fact that people were believing this 
early on in Christianity tells us something else was going on, okay? So first thing that um, we find is actually the same letter from uh, St. Paul in 1 Corinthians. And this letter actually dates back um, to about 53 AD, okay? So this is what St. Paul, again, earlier in the chapter, this is what he says. He says, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then the last of all, he was seen by me also. So again, this letter dates back to about 53 AD. What's unique about this letter is that historians will call this like one of the first creeds in Christianity. Um, and what we see here is not that like people didn't believe in, Christ in, in the resurrection until this letter, but this was already something that was passed down. This was already something that was taught. This was already something that was believed. It's impossible to call, like by definition of what a legend or a myth is, it's impossible to call the resurrection a legend or a myth. Like by historians' definition, it's impossible. Another thing that St. Paul notes here is if you don't believe me, who does he point to? He has a lot of witnesses, right? He says the disciples, Cephas, Peter, and he, he even points to himself. But then he said also Christ appears to how many people at once? 500. That's a bold claim to make. And then he backs it up by saying something interesting. He says, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep, meaning some have departed, some have died. But he's saying a lot of them are actually still around. If you don't believe me, I'm not the only eyewitness. Again, Christianity is not about a situation where one person received a message, aka here would be St. Paul, and then started telling everybody the message. He's saying, no, there's plenty of witnesses that agreed to my, te to, to my testimony here of what I'm saying about the resurrection of the dead. And in fact, I was actually one of the last people to see him, is what he says. So we know Christ died. This is not a myth. We have eyewitnesses. The other thing that, that a lot of scholars will point to is the fact that there was an empty tomb, right? And even the, those who opposed Christ admitted to the empty tomb. Even like if we read the, the gospel accounts, they actually made up an excuse for why the tomb was empty. And, and their, their conclusion was that the disciples stole it. First of all, the disciples did not have the means to steal it. They're not going to go up against Roman guards and try to steal the body of Christ. And second of all, like why? Well, what would be the goal there? And you say, okay, well, because they want to they spread this propaganda that Christ is risen from the dead. What did the... What did the disciples gain in the end by preaching this message? H how did St. Paul's life end? He was hanging out at the beach? No, like St. Paul died for his faith. St. Paul didn't, St. Paul spent a lot of time in prison, a lot of time traveling. Sometimes like he talks about like, like being beaten almost to death, stoned. What did they have to gain to lie about this? The conclusion for the early church and for us is simple. Jesus did die. And Jesus rose again. And if someone can predict their own death and resurrection, you just listen to whatever they say. Like if somebody predicts their own death and resurrection, pulls it off, you just you say, yes, sir. Whatever he says next, yes, sir, thank you. That's the conclusion that the disciples came to after seeing the risen Christ. And that's the conclusion that Christianity in the early church came to. And that's the starting point of Christianity. Anywhere that if we start Christianity anywhere else, we're mistaken. Because we can't start with a book. That's not how Christianity began. We can't start with anything else other than Christ died. Christ, Christ lived on this earth for 33 years. He, he preached. He healed. He did all these things. He died. He rose from the dead. 
And then his disciples went out to preach the good news. Question for me and you after that. What did Christ do after his resurrection? Christ didn't just die and rise and then leave his followers, right? Like Christ didn't just say, okay, this was fun. It's been a fun 30 plus years. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Hope this was like a fun experience for you. See you later. Good luck. After Christ did that, he sent them the Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit, the establishment of the church, the ancient church. And so far, we've kind of been digging a, a little bit deeper into like Christianity as a whole at, at large. But many of you are probably sitting there thinking, okay, Christ died, Christ rose, established a church, great. Where is it? Because there's a million churches out there. There's a million Christian churches. Like, I don't even know, does anyone actually know the number of denominations at this point? There's a million denominations in Christianity. How do we know, like, about the different churches? How do we know what the ancient church looked like? And my hope is that over the next few weeks, we kind of unlock that a little bit in terms of what was it about the ancient church? What are the treasures of the ancient church that have been passed down to us? And obviously, I'm biased. I'm going to speak about orthodoxy. I know, spoiler alert, okay? So we're going to talk about the orthodox faith in particular. But I want to, I'll make a disclaimer up front. I'm not here to judge anybody's faith. I'm not here to, to, to make a claim against anybody else's faith. But I'm saying, let's look at what the ancient church looked like and let's see. Let's just see. The difference between us and a lot of other churches is that we believe that the ancient church that Christ established is still alive today. Not every Christian church actually believes this, okay? Some churches will tell you, actually, the church started, but then there's a lot of corruption, things disintegrated, and then eventually it kind of got put back together. In Orthodoxy, we don't believe that. We believe that the ancient church that Christ established is still alive and well today. The church that Christ hand established and handed over to the apostles is still here and alive. And that's why the Orthodox Church in particular, we're very focused on preserving what we've been given, not creating. We don't like to create things. We preserve things. Okay? I'm not saying we don't adapt to the culture. Like Obviously, I'm speaking to you in English, for example. Okay, You go to another country, you're going to be speaking to you in another language. But we adapt, for sure. But we preserve what's been handed down to us. We don't create. If I come up here and I invent something and say, hey, guys, I think actually Jesus did this, you would say, that guy's gone cuckoo, okay? We need to figure something out. The church is all about preserving the faith. And I'm not saying that nothing has ever changed either, because sometimes when we, when we talk about Orthodox, we say, uh, Orthodox has been the same from the beginning. Nothing has ever changed. That's impossible, okay? Things change. Things evolve. Things adapt. The, the context changes. The, 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 the culture changes. Things change. But what I am saying is that the church that Christ established was one church, and anyone who joined the church at the time didn't invent anything. Take Cornelius, for example. Cornelius didn't come in and say, hey, but what do you guys think about this? I actually think we should do it this way. You see, I come from like this background, and I have you know, these pagan gods. We used to worship this way, so maybe we should add this. No, 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 no. He came submitting to the church. He came saying, okay, what is it about the faith? How can I learn about the faith? How can I continue in the faith? And again, for those skeptics, again, he would say, okay, I'm with you. Christ died and rose. From the dead, he established the church. But again, you can't convince me that a church full of humans, a church full of humans, didn't just become corrupt and disintegrate. Okay? And I'm not saying, by the way, that there wasn't corruption throughout the history of the Christian church at large. Okay? We, can, we can read history books and things like that. I'm not saying it like that. But what I am saying is that actually goes against exactly what Christ proclaimed about the church. Christ, in talking to St. Peter, says what? He says, and I also say to you, our Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. 
This is taken from Matthew chapter 16. And right before this, Peter makes the proclamation saying, Jesus, you are the, the, the son of the living God. Okay, so he makes the proclamation that Christ is the son of God, the Messiah. And Jesus in return says, very good, Peter, on this faith, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Christ says that his church, nothing can prevail against the church. Not even the gates of Hades can prevail against the church. So it's impossible for me and you to think that one corrupt person, one, you know, or, or like some corrupt actions can like completely disintegrate the church that Christ established. Humanity is not bigger than God. God is the one that's in control. It's not humanity. So the church is alive and well, and the church didn't disappear, but it's always been here with us. Um, and it was preserved to us by holy men and women of God and has been passed down through generations. Now, the, the big question for a lot of people and what we kind of argue about and bicker about all the time is, okay, well, how was the church passed down? By what means was the church passed down to us? Like, we say all these things all the time, like, yeah, the, the ancient church, church was passed down. Like, what does that mean? What does that look like? Some people, again, will say, and um, some people will say, like, the Bible is how the church was passed down. I'm not saying anything, like, sometimes when we say these things, people think, like, we, we don't like the Bible. We love the Bible in the Orthodox Church, okay? We love the Bible in the Orthodox Church. But it's impossible, it's impossible, literally impossible, to say that the Bible is the reason the church and, and, and the church and, and the traditions of the church were passed down. It's impossible. The reason it's impossible is historically. The Bible wasn't around. I know. The Bible wasn't around. Shocker. The Bible is not, again, a book that just came to us like, like an angel came. And, and you should take comfort in that. Anyone that comes to you, I heard a message from God, and here's what he has to say to you, you should be alarmed, okay? Like, you should take comfort in the fact that we don't just say things like, like that. That's kind of crazy. Anybody know when the Bible was kind of like beginning to be put together? So we had the Old Testament scripture, which if you read the New Testament, obviously they don't reference New Testament scripture. They reference Old Testament scripture, okay, because that's what they had. The New Testament, how long? Some people say 3rd century. Some people say 5th century. Some people say 7th century, okay? And truthfully, those dates are important in a way, and we have like a letter from like St. Athanasius that, that tells us the canons of, of like what, what to put in the, in the scripture, like what letters agree to the, the traditions of the church. But really, we're kind of missing the point with those dates. Even if we had the Bible, most people didn't read. Like people were illiterate. And even then, the printing press wasn't until much later. So people didn't have access to the Bible. So the Bible could, on its own cannot be the sole means by which it was passed down, that the church was passed down. Some people, when we say things like this, we have a lot of crazy thoughts in our head. So we say, okay, so those Christians that were living, let's just say, for the 5th century, like, what were they doing? Like, were they living, like, a diluted Christian faith? Like, clearly, we have the Bible, so, like, our faith is much better than theirs, right? Like, clearly, our faith is much better than theirs. Any, anyone agree with that crazy statement I just made? I hope not, okay? These are people that died for the faith. Without them, we wouldn't have the faith. These are people that gave up their life for God, and they loved God and the church, if we're being honest, a lot more than us. And with certain temptations that they were faced with, we couldn't even fathom. 
What I like to say about those early Christians is that they were, the, they were living the Bible before the Bible. They were living the Bible before the Bible, okay? The answer for us in terms of how the church was passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation is through holy tradition. And the reason is because the word tradition, by the way, literally just means passing down. Um, and holy tradition includes a lot of things. But this is what St. Paul actually says about this idea of tradition in his letter to the Thessalonians. He says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. That's interesting. So St. Paul, just a few, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians, he told us that he received something and then he gave it to them. Right? He received the faith. And he gave it to them. He delivered them the faith. And now he's saying the same thing. I delivered something to you. Now keep it. But he makes a distinction. He says, whether it was one of my epistles that I wrote or something I told you. Oral tradition was actually very much an active part of the early church. The faith is preserved through holy tradition. Again, which includes a lot of things, includes the Bible. And the Bible is part of that holy tradition, but again, it doesn't encompass the entirety of the holy tradition. It's impossible, it's impossible to separate tradition from the Bible because without the tradition of the church, without the teachings that we already had in place, we wouldn't know which books to keep in the Bible. There was a lot of crazy books, there still are. Every now and then I, I come across like, a, an, like an article thing, whatever news, the gospel of X has been found. I'm like, yeah, old, old news. Like, this is, not, this is not new news. We all know this. There's a lot of crazy things that were written back then. So the church had to decide what was true and what was not based on what has been given down to us because not everything was true. There's a lot of crazy things. And a lot of times what people would do, they would write like a letter and they would say, according to like somebody famous. So you would read the letter. Okay, so like according to Judas, like, oh, this, this is going to be interesting. I wonder what he had to say. So then you'd like pick up the letter of Judas and just read it. So the church said, whoa, whoa, this is getting out of hand. So then the church had to say, okay, these are the appropriate things that according to the faith that we have, and these are not the appropriate things, okay? So the Bible can't be separated from tradition, okay? The, 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 the saying that the Bible is the only means by which we know like what the church is and what God is, the Bible fails its own test in a way, okay? Like if we say we only believe only in the Bible, only things in the Bible, kind of fails its own test because we wouldn't have the Bible, Okay? That being said, I'm going to challenge us because I think we take the Bible for granted. We take the Bible for granted because I think if you told early Christians that I could gather around all the letters of St. Paul, okay, some of them were lost, but all the letters of St. Paul, and I can bring them all to you. I can bring you all four gospel accounts. I can give you all these things. I can give you the letters of St. John, St. Peter, and St. James. They would, like, they would be on cloud nine. They would be so excited to have access to that. And we have access to that on our phones, okay? Like we're in between making an order, like an like a order for dinner, and like having the Bible right there. So like I'm going to challenge us and say, you know what? The Bible is a very important part of our tradition, and we should take it seriously. But it isn't the only part of our holy tradition. Other parts of holy tradition um, are uh, the councils, okay? So like something that you probably have heard before is like the word trinity, for example, doesn't show up anywhere in the Bible. But pretty much every Christian church uses that term, to explain the Godhead, because that was something that was later explained, not invented, but it was an explanation of what we believed, okay? Um, and the councils, the, the, sometimes, again, people uh, don't really understand how this worked, but the councils weren't uh, people there sitting down together, let's invent something new. The councils were actually reactive. They were in defense of. 
So somebody would say something crazy. There's a priest in Alexandria named Arius. He's saying some crazy stuff about Jesus. Okay, let's gather the church leaders together. Hey, uh, weren't you a disciple of St. Ignatius? And who's, he was a disciple of St. John, right? And St. John's a follower of Christ. St. John was a follower of Christ. What did, what did you guys believe? Oh, that's what you guys believed, that he was both God and man. Okay, great, that's what we believe. Oh, yeah, and you were St. Thomas's disciple. Oh, and that's what he said. Okay, great, so we're all in agreement here. Arius, I think you're wrong. Will you accept the correction? Like, this is the faith. Will you accept this or not? If the answer is yes, welcome back. If the answer is no, sorry, not going to work out. Okay, so that, that's how the councils were done. It wasn't simply we're going to get together and invent things. The councils were done in a way that was reactive. Okay, and that's how the creed actually came about, was to explain how the heresies and things like that um, uh, were incorrect. Okay, so that's part of the tradition. So we have, obviously, the, the Bible's part of the tradition. We have the council's part of the tradition. Um, I won't go through everything, but other things you can think about in terms of part of the tradition um, include, like, uh, um, the sacraments, right, the baptism. We have early baptismal prayers. If you ever wonder why we're praying about idol worship in our, in our baptismal prayers, it's not because we think the infant that we're about to baptize was worshiping an idol five minutes ago, okay? <laughs> it's because we, that's how it was written. It was written for people that were coming into the faith, and that's what they were literally doing. Like, pagan worship was a real thing, okay? So that's how the, the prayers were written. So the baptism, the liturgy, the Eucharist, like all, all those things are part of our holy tradition. What the church fathers had to say about scripture is part of holy tradition. All these things are passed down. And the way that we know, the way that we know that, that all these things are, are kind of part of our holy tradition is because that's how it was from the beginning. People, again, didn't necessarily learn through reading, but what they learned was through the, the way that we worship, okay? They learned through worship. They learn through oral tradition and speaking with one another. And a teacher is coming, St. Paul is coming, and he's preaching to us. That's how they learn. Okay? Tertullian, who's an early church writer, he said the following. He said, The apostles founded churches in every city from which all other churches, one after another, borrowed the tradition of faith and seeds of doctrine. Indeed, it is only on this account that they will be able to deem themselves apostolic as being the offspring of apostolic churches. Okay. Tertullian was an early Christian writer. He's second century. Um, and what he is saying here, he's saying something that makes a lot of sense. He's saying the way that you know, the way that you know that a church is part of the early church is simple. Their faith, their doctrine, their practices, you can trace them back to that same church. They're one church. They're not a separate church. They're the same church. But here's an important part. It doesn't mean that every church was a carbon copy of each other, okay? Because churches actually differed a lot in terms of, and that's why St. Paul, when he writes his letters, he deals with different issues in every place. The church, the, the church in Corinth is very different from the church in Ephesus, okay? So every place was different. They weren't simply a carbon copy. But what they were saying was the core of the faith that's been passed down from generation to generation, from apostle, from disciples, from whoever, is the same. The core stayed the same, okay? You're probably thinking to yourself, who cares? Okay, I've been talking here for, for a while, and you're probably thinking, that's great, that's fine, who cares? Tradition and, and Bible, like, great, can't we just all love Jesus and be kind and, like, glory be to God for every man? Like, who cares? Like, what's the big deal? The reason this is a big deal is because Christ died for the church. That's what we say in the liturgy. He, said we pur he purchased the church with his own blood, right? 
So like Christ died for the church, and not just Christ. After him, his apostles, and after them, their disciples. What they were trying to pass down, they thought it was of great value, and there was nothing that was going to get in the way of them passing it down. And the fact that it kind of survived throughout all this stuff is a miracle in and of itself. But it showed us that the proclamation that Christ had said to St. Peter is true. I'll share kind of uh, a personal story. Um, when, whenever I, I, I heard, you know, talks about tradition and all this stuff, it makes sense up here, okay? But a lot of times it's hard to get, get it to make sense, like, practically. Like, wh what does that look like? I was uh, ordained as a priest in March of 2019, okay? And, and most of you would know that when you're ordained a priest in the Coptic Church, you get sent to the monastery, okay, for 40 days. Um, make it get sound like I was, like, just pushed there. But you get the privilege to go to the monastery for 40 days, okay? <laughs> privilege to go to the monastery for 40 days. So I was actually in a monastery in Egypt, St. Beshoi's Monastery. And there's many beautiful monasteries in Egypt. Um, and this is actually one of the oldest monasteries um, in, in all of Egypt, okay? And it's like a fourth century monastery, okay? So here's some pictures of me at this monastery. Sometimes when we talk about holy tradition, it's hard to kind of explain because it's a bit intangible, okay? This, for me, was like a really tangible way that I was literally being passed down something, okay? Like, I was there. I am a nobody, okay? And this is actually, the liturgy there is like in the, in the ancient church. So there's like a lot of churches in the monastery. This is the ancient church there. You pray like your celebrant, your first liturgy, you pray it there. So I just told you guys, this is the 4th century monastery. Just trivia, since we're doing trivia earlier. When was America founded? What's the, what's the year? 1776, okay. 4th century means around what time? Like the 300s, like, I just 1776, 300s, okay. So just to kind of give you guys context, because sometimes we think, like, things are really old when we go see them, and, like, the 300s, okay. And I remember... Um, teacher that was there, God bless him, a lot of patience. Um, it, he was the one that was like teaching, teaching the, the new priest, like the liturgy, okay? That was like what was being passed down to us. And I remember very much at the, in the very beginning, it was very overwhelming. And I was like, this is like worse than like calculus in high school. What, like what, this is, what is going on? And it was very overwhelming. And I was just like, and I, I looked at him and I was like, does anyone actually like get this right by the end? Like, is there like some cheat code I don't know about? He's like, you'll be okay, just like, just relax. And I remember after like a few, I think it was like, uh, like 10, 15 days, something like that. He was like, okay, now you're going to go pray like the first liturgy as a celebrant. Before this, you're not celebrating the liturgy. So like, the, like you're not the main officiant of the liturgy. You can participate in a liturgy, but you're not the main officiant of the liturgy. So this was like my first time officiating a liturgy. I remember he at one point in the beginning of the liturgy, we're sitting there, we're praying, and I'm just like looking around. And this is like an ancient church where it's fourth century. The, the second picture there, the, the, the relics behind me, that's Sam Beshoy, okay? The, like the monastery's founder is behind me. I'm sitting there and I'm just like, who decided this was a good idea? Like, <laughs> why am I here? Like, this is crazy. Like, who let me in? Like, somebody, guys, security needs to do a better job around here. This is nuts. And he could tell, like, I was really overwhelmed. And even, like, in the, in the, in the, in the, in, in, like, during the liturgy, he could tell, like, I was overwhelmed. And he just looked at me and said, Buna, Relax. Calm down. 
like, just calm down, just relax. And, and the reason it's overwhelming is because I kind of experienced this firsthand, this part of the tradition being passed down. Because again, like the liturgy is part of, of, of the holy tradition of the church. And I'm there. And it's the fourth, like I'm in this fourth century place and St. Peshoy is behind me. And I'm like, what is this world that I'm in? I'm like living in a different world. And it's hard not to be overwhelmed by the love of God and his church for us. Like every time, every time I think about like, man, what did it really take for us to be able to do what we do today? What did it really take for us? Like for us to be able to just freely pray the liturgy whenever we want. What did it take? What did people have to sacrifice? That's kind of crazy to think about. Like the fact that I was even there, that's kind of crazy to think about. And I'm just sitting there and it's like overwhelmed, overwhelmed by the love of God and the love that the church has for us. But what I'm telling you is that the church is like the beauty of the church, the treasures of the church, which we'll discuss over the coming weeks, has so many things like that. There are so many things that have been passed down that are treasures, that are beautiful, that we sometimes just take for granted. But when we kind of like look behind the curtain, there's a lot of sacrifice. There's a lot of work for, uh, for us to be here and for us to get to do what we get to do. St. Paul says the following about the church. He says, And he put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What St. Paul is talking about here is he is saying, the Father has put all things under the Son, and the Son is the head of the church, and the church being the body of Christ, in it we receive his fullness. Talk about being overwhelmed. It wasn't enough that God did all those things for us, but he says, I still want you to receive my fullness through the church, the church, through all the treasures that she has and has been, like in all the treasures that has been put into her by Christ, we get to partake in that. We get to participate in that. And the reason that Christ established the church, the, the sole existence for the church is this. The church is there to nurture our intimate union with Christ. Why does all this stuff matter? Because in the end, we have access to a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful church with a lot of treasures, an amazing faith, and in it, with all the treasures, she just pours out all her treasures so that we're nurtured into a more intimate union with Christ. There's an Eastern Orthodox priest, Father Michael, and he says it this way. He says, the church exists to bring men and women into communion with God through Christ, that they might become by grace what Christ is by nature. Okay. In the end, this is why the church exists. You're asking, why is this important? Why does it matter? We talked about Christianity as a whole, and the risen Christ is the center of the faith. And then Christ said, the next thing I want to do, I want to establish the church through the Holy Spirit and through my apostles. The church exists not because it's a fun membership club. The church exists for this. That men and women are in communion with God through Christ, and that they might become, by grace, what Christ is by nature. Over the next few weeks, um, we'll dig a little bit deeper into the treasures of the ancient faith, and we'll look at uh, a, a few different things. Okay, so we'll look at, like, like, the liturgy specifically. We'll look at other things, like things in the faith maybe that we know exist, or if we're being honest, sometimes we question why we do them. Like, what's the big deal, like, about saints in the church? I know that's always a, a big question mark for a lot of people. 
Like, what is the big deal about all this stuff, okay? But in the end, the goal of anything that we discuss, this is kind of the foundation for it. Because without understanding this foundation, we kind of miss everything else. So the question that you, you should always be asking yourself when you see something in church, whether you understand it or somebody's asking you a question, whatever it is, how is this bringing me into communion with Christ? How is whatever treasure that's being given to me bringing me into union with Christ? Because that's what the church is trying to do. If I'm not understanding it in that context, I've missed the point. Okay? So that's what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. And again, I, I said kind of the goal for us um, as we're going through these things is to understand the, the depth and the beauty and the sacrifice it took for us to have the church and for us to kind of resist that autopilot Christianity. That is the one thing I, I would hope that we're all kind of, as we're going through the series, is, okay, having been kind of going through the motions, I want to resist this autopilot Christianity, and hopefully looking behind the curtain, looking at the ancient faith, and looking at the treasures of the ancient faith um, will be inspired to do just that. Let's stand up for prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, we thank you for your blessings, for your kindness, for your love, for your humility, for your sacrifice, for everything, Lord, that you always pour onto us, Lord. We know we're not worthy of anything, Lord, but you always look out for us. You're always comforting us. You're always guiding us. We thank you, Lord, for the church. We thank you for always allowing us to, to see you in the church, to receive your fullness in the church. We ask you, Lord, that, that you help us, Lord, understand the, the, the greatness of what we have been given and, and all the sacrifice that you have done, Lord, for us and, and, and your apostles and your followers and that we, Lord, don't take anything for granted but that we truly live a life that, that's on fire for you, a life that is, that is hungry and thirsty to, to seek more of you, Lord, and to be more and more intimate with you, Lord. We ask that you hear our prayers through the intercessions of all your saints. Here says we pray thankfully, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory.